Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people in the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Sandy Park, a retiree from both American Federation of Teachers and AFSCME. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Keith Steffen, a member of the National Association of Letter Carriers. Today we bring you news of a march and rally for union solidarity. We celebrate UAW's victory for all workers, share an update on organizing at Oakwood Village, and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. There will be a Solidarity March and Rally tomorrow, Saturday, at the State Capitol. Keith Steffen and Frank Emspeck have the story. On Saturday, November 4th, 2023, workers representing several Madison Area Labor Unions affiliated with the South Central Federation of Labor will hold a Solidarity March and Rally for fair contracts, workers' rights. The March and Rally is sponsored by the South Central Federation of Labor as well as by many local unions, community organizations, and political leaders. Labor Radio spoke with Kevin Gunlock, president of the South Central Federation of Labor, and asked him to describe the focus of the demonstrations. One of the the main goals is to let the community know and just let them know that these struggles are still happening. There's so many struggles happening. Winning an election to represent the workers is one thing, but achieving a contract in face of management opposition is another. The rally will focus public attention on the refusal of management to reach contracts with workers at Madison Gas and Electric, that's OPIU Local 39, True Stage, formerly CUNA, again with OPIU Local 39, Madison Sourdough Company, and Starbucks, among other firms. Chris Hamada of OPIU Local's 39 True Stage Union summarizes the message of solidarity the rally seeks to convey to workers engaged in contract efforts in Madison and beyond. Quote, we're coming together collectively for this rally to make it clear that these are not isolated incidents with our individual companies. None of us are alone. And when we stand together in the fight for workers' rights, that's how we win, end quote. Kevin Gunlock emphasized a new level of organizing taking place in the Madison area. We've had record amount of organizing effort. And a lot of this was, was going on, but it really escalated after COVID. We've seen, we've seen a lot of organizing. Collectivo Coffee, Noble Night Games, Starbucks, Sourdough Bakery, which crushing apparel, which the tech industry, nonprofits, transportation, manufacturing, service sector, social services, even lawyers and journalists, right? We've got so many people that want to be in unions. And, and they're going on strike, too, when they have to. They're taking action. Community organizations sparsing the rally include the NAACP, as well as Worker Justice Wisconsin. Political leaders, State Representative Francesca Hong and State Senator Diane Hesselberg will also be speakers. Kevin Gunlock summed up the rally this way. Workers are taking a stand and we all should be standing with those workers. The march and rally will take place tomorrow, Saturday. Supporters will gather at the corner of State Street and Dayton Street starting at 9 a.m. They will march around the Capitol starting at 9.30, led by the forward marching band. The rally will begin at 10 a.m. on the State Street side of the Capitol. All are welcome. Thanks to Keith Seffen for this interview. With Kevin Gunlack, I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. 
The UAW reached a tentative agreement with General Motors Monday, ending the strikes which began on September 15th. Frank Emsbeck has the story. Over the next two weeks, UAW members at General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis will vote to accept or reject the tentative agreements reached by the union at each automaker. Sean Fain, president of the UAW, assessed the UAW victory this way. Once again, we have won several astonishing victories. For the past several weeks, analysts and pundits were crying that our union was going too far, that we were demanding too much. We didn't listen to them, and we never let up. The result is one of the most stunning contract victories since the sit-down strikes in the 1930s. Of particular importance in our area is the agreement by Stellantis to reopen the Stellantis plant in Belvedere, Illinois. Fain described the importance of the Belvedere win. We've done the impossible. We have moved mountains. We have reopened an assembly plant the company closed. And it's not just Belvedere. Going into these negotiations, the company was explicit. They wanted to cut 5,000 jobs across Stellantis. We were looking at a net loss of jobs. Our stand-up strike changed that equation. Not only did we not lose those 5,000 jobs, we turned it all the way around. By the end of this agreement, Stellantis will be adding 5,000 jobs. The UAW achieved similar wage, COLA, employment, and benefit gains in the Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis contracts. Fain outlined some of these gains as he described the GM contract. GM salaried workers will be provided general wage increases for the first time in our history. In fact, this will be the most lucrative contract for salaried GM workers in their history. For our hourly workers, it's the same story. The starting wage for our assembly workers in our new GM agreement will increase about 70% with estimated cost of living from $18 an hour to over $30 an hour. And the top wage will increase about 33% from $32.32 an hour to $42.95 an hour. And we have slammed the door on having a permanent underclass of temporary workers at General Motors. At ratification, all temporary workers with at least 90 days of employment will be converted to full-time seniority employees. These temporary workers will see raises between 51 and 115% immediately upon ratification. And moving forward, all temporary workers with nine months of employment will be automatically converted to full-time seniority employees. These are huge steps forward in our goal of ending tears, which have eroded our solidarity and our dignity while making these rich companies even richer. We also brought another group of workers into our agreement who we were told could never be brought in. All TM sales workers will now be under our master agreement. The significance of this cannot be overstated. Right now, the future of our industry is being defined. We stopped GM's race to the bottom. I don't care if you build combustion engines or electric vehicle batteries. These workers make these vehicles and this company run, and they will be recognized and compensated justly for it. But the impact of the UAW victory goes beyond the big three. Fain outlined a strategy to maximize working class power. We went to each of the big three and proposed an expiration date of April 30th, 2028. We did this for several reasons. First, 
This allows us to strike on May Day or International Workers' Day. It's a call to action. We invite unions around the country to align your contract expirations with our own so that together we can begin to flex our collective muscles. If we're going to truly take on the billionaire class and rebuild the economy so that it starts to work for the benefit of the many and not the few, then it's important that we not only strike, but that we strike together. Secondly, we demanded a longer contract because one of our biggest goals coming out of this historic contract victory is to organize like we've never organized before. When we return to the bargaining table in 2028, it won't just be with the big three, but with the big five or big six. The impact of the UAW victory is already being felt beyond the big three. Toyota announced Tuesday that it raised the wages of all factory workers by amounts ranging from $2.94 an hour to $3.70 an hour, resulting in a maximum wage of $43.20 per hour. I'm Frank Emsmack for Madison Labor Radio. And this just in. According to today's Wall Street Journal, the big three have agreed to pay each of the striking workers $100 per day for the days they were on strike. This will be in addition to the $500 per week of UAW strike pay. As the death toll on the Gaza Strip mounts, union members in the United States are debating labor's response to the continued U.S. support of Israel. According to the news service of the United Nations, citing figures from the Gaza Ministry of Health, as of today, 8,805 Palestinians have been killed since October 7th, including at least 3,648 children and 2,187 women, with some 22,240 injured. The UN highlighted heavy airstrikes hitting Jabalia refugee camp on Wednesday for the second day in a row and within less than 24 hours. The UN has condemned the weeks-long bombardment of the civilian population of the Gaza Strip, a tiny strip of land on the Mediterranean Sea with no free passage out, called by Human Rights Watch, the world's largest open-air prison, as disproportionate attacks that could amount to war crimes. This type of language was not enough for Volker Turk until a few days ago, the UN director of the New York office for the High Commissioner of Human Rights, who, in his October 28th resignation letter, chastised the UN for not doing enough in its history to stop genocides around the world, and who said of what is happening in Gaza right now, quote, this is a textbook case of genocide, unquote. Although in recent days, the Biden administration has called for what it calls a pause in the Israeli bombardment, the U.S. continues its opposition to United Nations international calls for a ceasefire. For its part, the AFL-CIO International Office in D.C., as reported by reporter Jeff Shirky of In These Times, on Tuesday issued a memo to all central labor councils and state federations to stop issuing statements on any matter of international politics, citing past precedent, with the Gaza war understood to be the focus. 
Two weeks ago, Labor Radio reported on a resolution submitted to the South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFFLE, which Labor Radio has learned in its current draft form, urges the AFL-CIO to support a ceasefire. Labor Radio talked last night to Scott McCullough, a member of the Wisconsin Professional Employees Council, or WEPEC, AFT Local 4848, who worked on the resolution to scuffle as a scuffle delegate, and who also worked on a resolution at the recent convention of his own union. McCullough described what happened there. Last week was the AFT Wisconsin biennial convention, so every two years, among a variety of other questions around, you know, sort of the management of the organization and the direction over the next year. We had a resolution that was put forward and a, and a resolution that we passed titled Support Freedom, Peace, Safety, Justice, and Human Rights for Palestinians and Israelis. And there was a lot of discussion amongst the group about it. I think pretty importantly, things that we included in our resolution at that convention and that we passed was calling for the release of hostages by Hamas and also urging the U.S. to work towards a ceasefire. McCulloch described a discussion around a call from the Palestinian General Federation of Trade Unions. One piece of the discussion was around the call to action from Palestinian trade unions. So a document was published around the middle of October that I've seen the title of it as an urgent call from Palestinian trade unions and all complicity, stop arming Israel, signed by the Palestinian General Federation of Trade Unions in Gaza, which includes a variety of different unions. So part of the discussion was around what's being called for in that document from the Palestinian trade unions, which their big focus, they've got it split up into five points, but the main thing is is to halt and hinder arms being sent to Israel. So uh, refusing to build weapons, refusing to transport weapons, to pass motions in trade unions to this effect, and working to stop governments, especially the U.S. government, from funding the Israeli military. So that was a discussion we had within AFT Wisconsin that did not get included in the final resolution that we passed. McCulloch told of union members who are organizing nationally around Palestine. U.S. Labor Against War and Racism is an organization that is sort of working to organize trade unionists and labor labor union members around the issue right now. And one of their big calls is get labor unions and labor union presidents to make statements in support of a ceasefire and to pressure the U.S. government and the Democratic Party to do the same. That was Scott McCullough of WEPEC AFT Local 4848 and a delegate to Scuffle. U.S. Labor Against the War and Racism is on Facebook and at laboragainstracismandwar.org. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. The gerrymandered legislative maps in Wisconsin negatively impact people of color, according to a number of protesters who attended the rally for fair maps in Madison last week. There is a demand for a nonpartisan process to draw maps. Labor Radio spoke with an organizer for Voces de la Frontera. My name is Stephanie Janet Salgado Altamirano. I work as the Dane County organizer for Voces de la Frontera. What were you doing here today? I was supporting the coalition of SEIU workers with also the Voces de la Frontera support group here in Madison to show up for fair maps against this bill that says it's for fair maps, but it's not. What do you know about this bill? I went and testified actually last week against it because when looking into the more direct logistics of it and how they were trying to keep up the status quo is just telling the public we're for fair maps when in reality we want to keep the maps that we have right now. And after looking through thoughtful research with the coalition of fair maps here in Wisconsin, it is not for what the people are asking for, which are fair maps. What is being done? What is being done about it is supposed to model this similar 
state that we are with Iowa when in reality we're not that similar. And so we were advocating today against this bill that is supposed to be for fair maps because Wisconsin is not the same as Iowa. And as we have heard in the speeches today, lots of you were saying that 40, around 40% 40 of the population here in Madison or actually the whole state of Wisconsin is people of color. And the Iowa map has a 70 or 75 percent, correct me if I'm wrong, white population, and it does not equate to the same margins of what we want for the people to go out freely to the polls and be represented by their representative. Why the rush do you think to do this bill when they have another 10 years? Very interesting enough, this is more my opinion, 2024 will be a pivotal year into what we are trying to do for the Wisconsin Supreme Court, for election year for president-wise, and also the primaries and taking all this into consideration, they're trying to keep on the status quo, but still trying to deliver these people like, look, we represented you, we try to do for fair maps. But in reality, they're trying to keep the status and the power within already the maps that they got right now. Do you have any idea what's likely to happen with these bills? I have no idea, actually. And I thought I did, maybe with the Supreme Court, but now that there's the ongoing conversation of the impeachment of Janet, I have no idea how that will turn out. Anything else that you'd like to talk about in terms of fair maps and how they impact working people and people of color? Yes, I'm so glad that you were all here today, especially SEIU, Voces de la Frontera, Planned Parenthood, because like one person said, at one union, one fight, I truly believe that we are one coalition together. And for all my people out there that say, why should I go out to vote when my vote doesn't count? This is your chance to make it count. Go out. If you have the next protest for fair maps, if you want to testify, let me know. I am Stephanie Janes Algarta-Mirano, and I would love to get you involved. That was Stephanie Zalgato Altamirano of Voces de la Frontera. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Madison Labor Radio. Greg Jaboski talks to Naukwood Village worker on the new union contract there. A week ago Thursday, the workers of Oakwood Village, represented by SEIU Wisconsin, signed a new contract with the management of that Madison retirement community and assisted living facility. The agreement began on Wednesday and runs through August 2025. On Tuesday, Labor Radio spoke to Peter Thurlow, a facilities services technician at Oakwood Village and a member of SEIU Wisconsin, who gave details of the new contract. We got two holidays added to our calendar, Oakwood to recognize both Marlon Luther King Day and also Juneteenth. So those are now, you can either take them off or they're paid time and a half. It's been a initiative of the union to make sure that those are recognized by employers and hopefully municipalities and governments. We're also got a pay increase of about 12% over the next year and a half. 
we also got our health insurance plan reinstated. We had a popular plan that management did some shenanigans last year and went to a different one. And we got our plan back that a lot of members are really happy to have. We also got some increased premiums for different scheduling and other improvements around the workplace. We also fixed our pay scale to make it, I think, more fair. Thurlow was pleased with the mood of negotiations between workers and management, which had not always been bright before this year. The attitude from our management was pretty collaborative this time, or at least much more than it has been in the past couple of years. Uh, we had a previously had a pretty nasty CEO and with him gone, the atmosphere is just totally different. I think management has been much more willing to work with us beyond us building power ourselves. That also has been a big help for for winning the good contract that we got. The former CEO, Reginald Hislop III, had longstanding friction with workers, but according to Thurlow and news reports from last year, made the mistake of antagonizing Oakwood residents as well, who after some research found that there was no record of master's and doctoral degrees Hislop had claimed on this resume, and that he could not verify claimed military service or even a claimed short stint in professional baseball. The Oakwood board let Hislop go in December. Here's just one anecdote that Thurlow had of what it was like to work under Hislop. This is a guy who had a fake urn on his desk that had a label saying the ashes of problem employees. Thurlow was hopeful that the new contract will improve things for both workers and residents at Oakwood. Well, I'm hopeful that the new contract will encourage better staff retention, both in my department and across the board. We've been running a little short in my department, but certainly that's been a major issue for our caregivers as well, CNAs and RAs. If you're a caregiver, you've got to get make sure that people are getting their meds, that they're getting bathed, that they're getting dressed and changed, that their laundry is getting done. And there's been a lot of turnover there because it's a stressful job. I'm hopeful this helps retention there and attracts more people to work at Oakwood. Thurlow expressed what he feels is a marked improvement of the atmosphere of Oakwood Village and looks forward to working with his union to continue to help residents there. It feels great to have, after several difficult years facing both COVID and (laughs) objectively terrible CEO to come out of it with this really good contract. We've organized a lot of workers this year. People have felt much more engaged and interested. That was Peter Thurlow, a worker at Oakwood Village in Madison and a member of SEIU Wisconsin. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jaboski. It started in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin TA strike film and discussion is coming up. Frank M. Speck has the story. The first recognized graduate student union in the United States was the Teaching Assistance Association. In March 1970, University of Wisconsin-Madison Teaching Assistance struck for 24 days to win the first collective bargaining agreement by graduate employees. The Eastside Freedom Library presents the film, quote, The Wisconsin TA Strike, via YouTube and an accompanying Zoom discussion. The Wisconsin TA Strike is a powerful video. It expresses, one, why TAs organized, two, the roles played by labor solidarity, and three, management union busting. The TAA was a pioneer, but since then the world of graduate student union representation has been revolutionized. According to Wikipedia, there are 156 active graduate student bargaining units representing well over 250,000 graduate students. The UAW's new direction illustrates how important 
this organized segment of the working class is. Of the UAW's 383,000 active members, 100,000 are workers in higher education, according to NPR. This group of workers voted overwhelmingly for Sean Fain for their new president. Without their votes, he would not have won the presidency of the UIW. The TAA's ability to represent its members also illustrates how important a robust union is to the state of Wisconsin's economy. As Carol Weidel discusses in the following story, neighboring states who resisted right-wing attacks on collective bargaining all have more robust economies and higher wages as compared to Wisconsin. Please go to the Eastside Freedom Library website to register for the event, including a discussion with the original leaders of the strike. The event will take place online on November 28th at 7 p.m. Central Time. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. According to a recent report from the Economic Economic Policy Institute, several Midwestern states, including Wisconsin, enacted right-wing anti-worker policies following the Great Recession. Data indicates this caused a downturn in wages and worker protections compared to other areas of the country. Carol Weidel takes a look at the report. Anti-worker policies have weakened the economy in the Midwest in recent decades, according to a new Economic Policy Institute report examining the state of employment, wages, poverty, and union density in the region. While federal relief efforts during the pandemic gave the Midwest and the rest of the country a boost, the sunsetting of those relief programs have put workers and families back in a precarious position. The Great Recession began in late 2007 and lasted until mid-2009. It was the longest and deepest economic downturn in many countries, including the United States. In the wake of the Great Recession, though, right-wing politicians took control in all Midwestern states except Illinois and Minnesota and began passing policies that had negative outcomes for workers, especially for black and brown workers. Most Midwestern states have implemented policies that have worsened job quality and reduced economic security for working families, such as passing so-called right-to-work laws and preempting local government's efforts to improve labor standards. As a result, the Midwest has endured years of slow economic growth and declines in unionization. As a result of sluggish wage growth, wage levels in the Midwest lag almost every other region, faring only slightly better than the South, a region known for its low wages, limited worker protections, and hostility to unions. In 2022, the median worker was paid $22.10 an hour in the Midwest, lower than the U.S. average of $22.88, and much lower than the median in the West, $24.01, and the Northeast, $24.94. However, not all Midwestern states are seeking to weaken their unemployment insurance programs. Some are instead expanding unemployment benefits. In Minnesota, the state legislature recently passed a bill to extend eligibility of unemployment benefits to public school support staff during the summer months. Illinois passed a similar bill in 2020. The benefits are a lifeline to school employees who are disproportionately women and workers of color, paid low wages, and until recently forced to go months without pay or unemployment benefits. Instead of making unemployment insurance benefits less generous and more difficult for the unemployed workers to access, the Midwest should follow the lead of states like Minnesota and Illinois. This would benefit both workers and the macroeconomy of the region. 
Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Sandy Park. Thanks to editor Frank Spack, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Jaboski, Anna Hom, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader, our reader coordinator and my reader t- today, and to all of our readers and the members of the IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Keith Steffen. We also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the Professor Bill Clark.